As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Just so strange and uh, so wonderful, really. 90-year-old Margaret Keenan becoming the first person to receive Pfizer-BioNTech's coronavirus vaccine outside of clinical trials. On Thursday, could be approved for emergency use in the U.S. We will immediately begin mass distribution. We're hopeful that we'll be able to start immunizing people by end of next week. Groups all over the state making their case for when they should get the vaccine. This is one thing that uh, will help us live because COVID is not going away. I am not anti-vaccine. I don't know if I want to be a guinea pig. There is still a significant portion of the population that remains defiant. The primary goal is keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people from dying. Federal officials estimate there will be enough of the COVID-19 vaccine for everyone in the U.S. sometime between April and June. We're not there yet. On March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. 274 days later, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is on the verge of granting emergency approval of a COVID-19 vaccine. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on the morning of Thursday, December 10th. And as we speak, the FDA's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee has begun a day-long meeting. They'll be discussing Pfizer's application for emergency approval of a COVID-19 vaccine. A vote on that application is expected sometime after 3 p.m. Central. And Brian, there are wide expectations that this will be approved. That's what everyone expects, and, and for good reason, because the two key factors that the FDA has said that they need to see from any uh, emergency application for a vaccine is they need to know that vaccine is effective. They need to see evidence of that, and they need to see that that uh, evidence of effectiveness outweighs any risks. And that would include things like serious side effects or adverse events. And so far, in terms of Pfizer's data, the clinical trials, as we've all reported many times and we've all heard, they've shown 95% uh, effectiveness, uh, which we can talk a little bit about what that exactly means, but it means it's far beyond what FDA was seeking. They wanted to see vaccines in the beginning, they said, that were at least 50% effective. So 95% far exceeds what FDA set as its benchmark for effectiveness. That leaves the question of you know, safety, which we all know that the timeline of this has been sped up dramatically over anything in the past. A lot of that has to do with putting things in parallel that used to happen in series, such as ramping up of production and, and funding and things like that. Uh, but, you know, we've heard again and again from the vaccine manufacturers, from the researchers and from regulators that there have been no corners cut here on safety. And so far, the 
Phase three of the clinical trials have shown no serious adverse uh, event concerns um, that uh, that should block this from approval. So we do expect potentially later today to have an emergency approval of the first COVID-19 vaccine in the United States. And I do want to talk about that word you used before effectiveness, because sometimes there's confusion about what exactly that means. So with this vaccine being 95% effective, that doesn't mean that it stops you from spreading the virus. What it does is it can prevent you from getting sick from the virus, but the virus can still live in your nostrils, can still be spread. And that's why, you know, medical professionals have been saying, don't throw your mask away after you get this vaccine. Continue to practice social distancing because we also don't really have data on what this vaccine does for the spread of the of people who are asymptomatic with the virus. There is it's not to say that it doesn't do anything for preventing infection and spread, but the data is less uh, well, uh, I guess, vetted at this point. And, And the early indications appear to be that there may be a lower effectiveness in preventing asymptomatic spread, a lower effectiveness in in just preventing infection in general. So what we what that that 95 percent effective, like you said, Amanda, that that is referring specifically to the prevention of severe disease, um, serious illness and and death. And what we've seen from the Pfizer trials is that out of I think it was something like 33, 34,000 people whose data was in by the the time this was collected um, out of 40 something thousand that have been part of the trial of the 33,600 or so uh, whose follow ups had reached the two month period. Um, half were in the placebo group, half were in the vaccine group. That means half actually got the vaccine, half got what was a dose that was not the vaccine at all. And of those two groups. 162 people, I'm sorry, 170 people developed COVID-19, confirmed cases of COVID-19. And between those two groups, 162, and I should say developed the disease, not just an infection of the virus, but developed the COVID-19 disease, symptoms severe enough to, to count for this study. 162 of those 170 people were in the placebo group. Only eight were in the vaccine group. And if you do the math on that, 162 out of 170 is about 95%. So when they're talking about effectiveness at a level of 95%, that's what they mean is that the vast majority of people in this study who got severe COVID disease in the two-month period after their vaccination were in the placebo group. Uh, That doesn't mean that no one who got the vaccine got sick. There were people who got sick, and there will always be a risk that people will still get this disease after getting the vaccine. But the more effective it is and the more people who get it, the better the chance that you knock down the spread to a point where it is manageable. And we aren't in the circumstance we are in right now, which is out of control spread in every county in Wisconsin and, of course, all over the country. Well, and if this vaccine is approved today, we could see it arrive in Wisconsin as soon as next week. That's right. And and as I said, a lot of things are happening at the same time that in the past might have happened one after the other in chronological order. In this case, the distribution of the vaccine has already begun. We've heard about Pfizer doses arriving uh, in Chicago and they'll they'll be in Pleasant Prairie, which is one of their hubs here in Wisconsin for distribution out to different parts of the state. 
And so it's ready to go once this EUA happens, the emergency use authorization, assuming it does come from FDA today. And I think there's some other things that may have to happen in the next couple of days after that. By next week, we could see actual injections being administered to those who are considered the top priority recipients of the vaccine. So we're actually going to start see start seeing doses not only farmed out, but injected into people's arms. And then that will begin the ball rolling on what should be a several month process toward getting it out to more and more people and eventually to the general public. And we've talked about this before. Who gets the vaccine first has been very much a topic of discussion across the country, but especially here in the state of Wisconsin. It sounds like it's been settled on who's the very first group to get the vaccine. It's kind of that next phase where there's some discussion about who gets included in that. Well, and that first group, so Wisconsin has a vaccination plan that is broken down into phases, and these phases are based on the guidance uh, from CDC. So every state is going to be following these same rules generally and or guidelines in terms of how to do this. And I think everyone by now has a pretty good idea of the basic groups that are involved in that top tier phase. That's healthcare workers and residents of long term care facilities. But those are two giant groups and they encompass more than 500,000 people in the state of Wisconsin alone. I think I heard Mayor Barrett say it might even be 600,000. So it's a huge group of people just to begin with. There's only 5.8 million people in the state. So that's roughly 10% of the population of Wisconsin that's in this phase 1A. So even within that group, there's been a lot of discussion about sub-prioritization because there won't be 600,000 doses available next week in Wisconsin. There will be about 65,000 doses. In fact, not even that many. When Pfizer's approved, there will be about 50,000. It's expected the following week that Moderna will have its vaccine also approved by the FDA, which will mean Wisconsin gets another 16,000. That's what's expected. So in the first couple of weeks, we're talking 65,000 doses for roughly 600,000 people. That's maybe 10 to 15 percent of the total number of people in that very first phase. So there's already discussion about, well, who within the top tier is the top tier of the top tier? Who is the most important? And to some degree, that's going to be left to local healthcare providers or vaccinators, the people who've signed up and been approved to actually administer the vaccines to determine who gets it first. And there are all sorts of questions raised by that because there are many people who qualify for phase 1A who don't really have a healthcare agency that they belong to that will be a vaccinator. So let's say, for instance, that you are a doctor or a nurse at Marshfield Clinic, for instance. Well, Marshfield Clinic is going to be a vaccinator and they will start to vaccinate their own employees and determine who are the most critical, who are the ones dealing directly with patients in the COVID wing, for example, um, in nursing homes. Maybe it's the, the sickest and frailest of, of residents or, or staff members who are dealing with those people. But if you, say, work for a rural EMS service and you are every day dealing with patients who you transport 30 minutes or more to a, a hospital who might have COVID-19, in fact, often will have uh, COVID-19, Who's going to give you a shot? And that's been a real big question as to do you sort of get a, a sponsorship, so to speak, from a local hospital or some other organization that that is willing to use some of its scarce doses to help you out as well? Um, those are some of the discussions that are going on. But the bottom line is there won't be enough vaccine for the people who need it initially 
it's going to take some time to get more of those doses shipped and distributed into the state and eventually to everyone, even in that first phase. Well, and while we're talking about healthcare workers, we should point out that there are groups of people within that group who will not be getting this vaccine. So around 75% of our healthcare workforce is women. A lot of those women are of childbearing age. The CDC estimates that 350,000 of those people across the United States could be pregnant or immediately postpartum at the time that the vaccine is available. And pregnant women were not included in the clinical trial, as is common in trials for vaccines. Pregnant women are usually the last group of people that we have that data on. So we don't know how this affects the fetus. We don't know how this affects the mom. We don't know how this affects women who maybe want to get pregnant soon. And they're kind of in that window of, do I get vaccinated now? And then you know, go go ahead and get pregnant. And so, you know, we're, we're hearing from uh, these healthcare workers who have concerns and a lot of their workplaces are saying, you don't, we're not going to require you to get this. You don't have to get this. But they're also exposed to COVID-19. And when you're pregnant, you are at higher risk of having some uh, pretty severe symptoms of the disease. So a lot of them are, are weighing their options right now what is actually the bigger risk here? Well, and we know that the the vaccine, even in, in trials, has shown, maybe it hasn't shown some of the really severe, uh, potentially deadly side effects that I think the FDA is most concerned about. But it's certainly shown side effects, as any drug will, uh, that are potentially cause for at least pause and concern, especially if you're someone who has other types of vulnerabilities, particularly if you are someone who is pregnant. Some of the side effects of the vaccine itself are very similar to the symptoms of the disease, which raise some real questions and concerns. And we've seen some of the most common side effects that have been reported are things like headache, muscle aches, fever, things that may very well sound like symptoms of COVID-19 itself. So and that's just in someone who's not dealing with something like a pregnancy. You add that in without the data for safety behind it from the clinical trials. And, and it's a real concern if you're someone who's in that category as to whether or not you should be taking that kind of a risk. Right. And children were also not included in this trial. Now, children it, it, 12 and up are being included in this next round of studies on the vaccine. But it's going to be that right now the vaccine we're talking about that could be approved today is not for children. So this isn't something where parents, you're gonna get a notice that says, hey, little Johnny needs to be vaccinated before he comes back to school in September. But it is something as we get that data on how this affects children. Um, and again, this is the common way this plays out with vaccines. Usually it's tested on adults first and then children come after that and then pregnant women are last. So as we get that data, it will be interesting to see how schools deal with this because they already have a hard time getting kids vaccinated with the things that they're already required to be vaccinated with, uh, given the various exemptions that exist. 
And obviously, even if children were included, they're so far down the list right now because, number one, they're not the ones who suffer the most severe forms of the disease in terms of the way what the data shows, but also because there's just not enough of the vaccine for that to even be a question yet, which raises that issue, Amanda, of you know, scarcity and how long it's going to be that way. At a certain point, we expect that the production and distribution will ramp up to a degree that the general public is going to be able to get this vaccine. But that is several months down the road. Some say it will be between maybe April and June. Um, but that timeline is is just a guess at this point based on a lot of variables and factors. And I know that there's been some discussion about whether or not the United States could have had more doses available already or right off the bat. But uh, it sounds like the, the, the U.S. took a little bit of a pass on that. Can you tell me what happened there? Yeah. So the U.S. had this thing called Operation Warp Speed. And this was basically where um, the U.S. said, "Okay, we're going to have these different companies working on these different ways to put this vaccine together. And we're going to take away the financial risk for you. We're going to give you money for that up front, whether or not this vaccine works. And that's part of the reason this was able to be expedited. Pfizer did not take the money, in part because they said, we don't need the money, we're a a massive company, but in part because they felt like more government, it would come with strings attached and more government oversight would slow them down. So with Pfizer, when when the U.S. was going back and forth with Pfizer, it's almost like a a free bet that they take on them when they're ordering doses of the vaccine, because for Pfizer, the U.S. doesn't need to pay them up front because they're not part of Operation Warp Speed. So we pay you if it works. So the U.S. ordered um, 100 million doses from Pfizer. And Pfizer, uh, according to New York Times reporting, was basically going, are, are you sure you don't want more? Again, U.S. doesn't pay unless this works. But the U.S. took the stance of you know what, we're trying, we're hedging a whole bunch of different bets with different companies. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. We're not, we're not going to order more. In the meantime, other countries started ordering more doses. So the European Union is getting 200 million doses and Pfizer has contracts with those companies. Now that Pfizer, and and remember, this was at a point where it wasn't super clear that Pfizer was the leader in all this, that Pfizer was going to be the first to have the vaccine developed. Well, as that became more clear, it became harder for Pfizer to say, yeah, we can get you more doses as fast as you want, United States government. Um, And it's not that Pfizer doesn't want to make more, it's just they have these contracts with these other companies now. And, and there are limitations to their capacity for correct, manufacturing. Correct. They they are at their capacity for what they're producing. So the company will eventually be able to make more, but that's they can't really guarantee that they'll those that next round will be available before June. And that's why we're talking about some of the delays here. Now we have other vaccines that do look promising. Um, You know, Moderna is one that's coming up here that could be approved uh, shortly after Pfizer. And that one doesn't have some of the same uh, storage limitations that Pfizer has. So it's not like there aren't other options. But for this first vaccine, 
uh, that's going to be available. Th there was an opportunity to have more doses, and the U.S. took a pass on that. Well, and you mentioned that there are other vaccines. Obviously, Moderna is another one that's shown the same or very similar numbers in terms of the evidence of effectiveness, that 90 plus percent range. Um, and so there's a lot of hope for that. But it also requires cold storage, just not quite to the degree that uh, that Pfizer's does. So the, there are logistical issues for both in terms of the transportation and distribution, because not every corner clinic uh, has the ability to cold store some of this stuff the way it needs to be. But that is one of the reasons that there's been a lot of focus and attention on AstraZeneca, which is a third uh, a vi a third vaccine that is expected to ultimately gain approval, though it's a little further behind. And its effectiveness level is a bit lower. It's showing something more on the order of 70% effectiveness. Uh, and, and there have been some other questions with AstraZeneca about some of the adverse events that may be related to that. So that one still got some, some maybe clouds and questions hanging around with it. But one of the reasons there's some real hope for AstraZeneca is because it doesn't require that severe cold storage that limits the dis distribution to some of these others. And it is uh, apparently less expensive. So it is thought to that, that in the long run, that may be the one that is distributed most widely, especially to a lot of countries that otherwise can't afford uh, some of the the vaccines that are coming right out here at the beginning. But it really remains to be seen how that's going to play out, I think, here in the U.S., because in a country that is comparatively wealthy to the rest of the world, will there be a wide demand for uh, an AstraZeneca vaccine that may not be as effective as Pfizer or Moderna, but may be more easily distributed. So there's a lot that's really left to be determined as these things roll out in the coming months. And as we look at these questions, we're going to keep bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover developments with the vaccine, COVID-19 pandemic, reckless driving, police community relations, so much more. So if there's a topic you want us to talk about or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. And I do wonder if we won't all look back at this day one day, if the approval comes from the FDA, if we won't look back at this as V-Day in America. It's a significant day, and uh, we appreciate you tuning in to Open Record. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, from producer Pete to Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. For Amanda St. Hilaire, I'm Brian Polson, and we'll talk to you again on Tuesday. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.